Pulp MX Network production. To this day, when I hear that song, I see you standing there on that lawn. Discount shades, store bought tank, flip flops, and cut off jeans. Somewhere between that. A new view from inside the truck. X racer to racer and eye to eye. A casual look into the personalities of the sport and an experienced perspective into the action from week to week. It's Jason Thomas's industry seating. Presented by Pirelli Tires, Guts Racing, Plum Creek Funding, Pro Glow Wash, Works Connection, Bass Foundry, TL Speed Shop, Grandstone Boots, and Fly Racing. One more week. It's that time. We are in 2023, and next week is the beginning of 2023 Monster Energy Supercross Series, and I, for one, couldn't be more excited. I've uh, gone through Christmas, gone through New Year's, and it's kind of the same cycle every year, right? I know it's coming. You start to do these these videos and we do these preview podcasts and all these things. So I kind of get that ramp feeling and, and you're seeing all the cool videos coming out of the test tracks and there's a lot to be excited about and it's like this slow building process. But then I feel like Christmas and New Year's kind of takes some of the attention off of it and you're, you know, I think everybody's focus goes away from work stuff a little bit and you're, you know, you want to talk to your family and, and, get in the Christmas spirit and do all those things. And obviously if you're a football fan, there's been tons and tons of football and that season is kind of going towards crescendo right now. But I think this week we switch back to supercross mode. I know I will be, um, you know, we'll be preparing everything we can as far as fly racing goes to get ready for the season. And I think you start to feel the anticipation really rise because we got all that other stuff out of the way and that's all great. Like we all love the holidays, but now you, you kind of look for, okay, what's next? And Supercross is everything now, right? It's, it's that next big thing to start. And it's been a long time. You know, we haven't had a lot of racing for, for several months now. You know, if you were into World Supercross, okay, there was some stuff there. But for me, it really goes back to Motocross of Nations, where I was fully locked in at an event, you know, and doing all the things that I do, my normal workload with writing and podcasts and all those things. So it's been a hot minute and I, I've had time to recover. I've had time to kind of get over the burnout factor and get excited. Now it's time to get excited again. Um, and so I, I really enjoy kind of this time of year that gets to lots of days off, um, which is nice as well. So we're going to answer a few more questions today and look towards next weekend's first race. Uh, the sponsors of this podcast, and I can't thank them enough for, for being on board are Pirelli tires, guts, racing, plum Creek funding, Fast Foundry, TL Speed Shop, Works Connection, Pro Glow Wash, the International Vet MX Series, Grant Stone Boots, and Fly Racing. Thank you to all of them for being on board. Uh, and this, this week, again, I'm, I'm answering, answering listener questions because, because, of course, we don't have the racing to quite talk about yet. I also did want to mention, if you are looking for some sort of preview each week, right? Like, most of you... I don't want to say most of you, but a lot of you probably play Pulpamex Fantasy. You know, if you're listening to a podcast like this, it's kind of right up your alley. So I would encourage you to try it out if you haven't in the past. But I do a Patreon podcast every Saturday morning before the event. I really try to steer it around what I expect to happen. 
some of the rumors that I've heard maybe on Friday, because you, you get a lot of news, like everybody kind of gathers at the track on Friday, and you, what did you hear this week? What's going on? What's happening behind the scenes? Some of that will affect the results. It, some of that will absolutely affect your fantasy results. So I try to give some insight um, as to what I heard and also how I think things play out, because certain tracks, certain weather conditions, certain types of dirt all play a role in this series. And not only for the Tomacs and the Jason Andersons and those guys, but also for the guys in middling in the pack, the Freddie Norens and the Alex Rays and the Kyle Chisholms, those guys are absolutely uh, affected by some of these things as well. So I really try to do that in uh, the most insightful way. And sometimes I'm wrong, of course, but it's more my opinion of what's going to go on. So if you want to check that out, uh, it's patreon.com slash industry seating. It's usually like 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, every Saturday morning. So enough about that. Uh, let's jump right into this thing. I'm going to try to keep it short and sweet for you guys this week. Uh, first question is from Sean Moore. Thank you for uh, thank you to everybody for submitting these. I really appreciate it. He says recently Jason Anderson posted a photo with McGrath and he seemed very hype about it. Obviously excited. Uh, do you think current and recent developments uh, developments past? I don't know what that means, but he's basically asking if Riders of today look back on Jeremy McGrath and have the same regard that common fans do, right? Do they idolize him the same way that people across the country do that maybe don't get to go to races? Maybe, you know, certainly didn't race professionally. Do they have that same level of, you know, uh, respect that, that we all do? And I would say yes and no. It's, it's different. Um, even for myself, and, and the only way I know how to answer this is to try to relate it to my own experiences, is yes, those guys were my heroes. Bradshaw, McGrath, Rick Johnson, uh, go down the list in different eras. They were absolutely my hero. And I, I was very fortunate uh, to get to meet those guys long before I turned pro. And then as I became bet- a better pro, I started racing them more and more. Um, I had pretty heavy battles with McGrath and certainly past his prime, of course, but you go into the 04, 05, 06, 07 years where he was still kind of hanging out, hanging around racing. He would do a bunch of Euro races. We would race a lot and we battled pretty hard. Um, so it changes, like you don't look up to them in the same way when you have to compete against them. And I also think for a guy like Jason Anderson, who's like at the peak of the sport, right? Much higher level than I ever reached. I think it's more your peer than it is like the hero or the idol, you know, side that it used to be for those guys. So it kind of goes in stages where, yes, you know, when Jason Anderson's a kid in the early 2000s, I'm sure he was in awe of guys like Carmichael and Chad Reed and those guys. But then you go into this scenario where you're racing against them. And then for Jason Anderson, he went to a stage where he was beating guys like Chad Reed. And now he is a guy like Chad Reed. Maybe doesn't have their credentials, the wins and all those things, but he is at the, the pinnacle of the sport battling for championships. He is a former champion. So it's, it's different. Yes, there is a ton of respect there. Yes, I think he can appreciate how great Jeremy McGrath was because he can take his own career, look at all the accolades that Jeremy McGrath has, 72 wins and all these titles, and go, man, that's, <laughs> that's like impossible for me to pull off. That guy must have been amazing, right? So 
it's different. I don't think he would look at them, look at Jeremy McGrath the same way that a fan in Omaha would um, because they have a relationship and he can put himself into the same scenario of Jeremy McGrath. He's doing all the things that McGrath did to a certain extent. So same but different. Um, and, and I hope that makes sense to you. But it's more of like a brotherhood almost. Like there's like a kinship between them now where it's not the same way that an average fan would look at them. It's more like, okay, we're on the same level and, and the respect is more like man-to-man versus fan versus factory rider. It's just a different, it's a different dynamic. But yes, to the respect question, there's a, there's a ton of respect there. I just think it's maybe in a little bit of a different form. Uh, next question is from Larry, and thanks, Larry, uh, for sending this in. Um, he asked me, as a, as a racer, you were known as a blue-collar, working-type racer uh, who the grind brought him success as a professional. Uh, you were able, able to overcome obstacles through your work ethic, but in retrospect, do you think you could have enjoyed the moment more? Do you think that the grind weighed so heavily on you that you couldn't truly be in the moment? And he's got another question that we'll get to. So first part of this question, uh, yes, and, and thank you for the kind words there. But I've been pretty vocal, and, and looking back, um, I didn't enjoy a lot of the process going on around me. I was so wrapped up in, you know, the success-fail type, you know, there, there was no gray area. It was either I was getting it done or I wasn't. Um, and I, I was so terrified of failure that it didn't allow me to enjoy it most of the time. Um, if you knew me while I was racing, I wasn't the most pleasant at the races. I was really serious with it, and I wasn't there to really have a good time. I was there to to get the job done and to make good on all of this hard work and sacrifice that myself and my family and, and friends and teams and all these people had put out there. So could I have approached it differently? Absolutely. Um, and you could say I should have approached it differently, but it was the only way I knew how to get the best out of myself and to perform. If I had been less serious, I don't think that I would have been able to find the intensity I needed to be my best. Um, I didn't have a ton of natural talent. I had to just continually work to get a little bit better and a little bit better and keep dealing with these kids that kept you know, it was always just a different group of new people coming into the sport that I had to fight off to stay in my spot, right? Which was like, I don't know, 8 to 16, 8 to 15 for a long time. And if you go through the history books of my career and see who I was battling like in 98 versus who I was battling in like 2010, it's a whole different group of people. Like all the names are all different. So that's what I mean is like I had to continually evolve and improve my skill set. So when that group aged out or didn't make it or quit or got hurt and the new kids came up and then they were these, you know, I had to get better too because they brought new techniques and the sport was evolving and the bikes got better. So that means your skill set had to get better along with it. And that's, that was a, just a nonstop process. And I learned a lot from other riders watching them, Tim Ferry and Chad Reed, these guys that had really long careers, Nick Way, they had to do the same thing. And it's something we've talked about in the past is you, you really had to work on that side of your game. Otherwise, you would become a dinosaur and you would get pushed out early. And it, eventually, it, it happens to everyone. It happened to me. happened to Chad Reed. Um, it happens to everybody. 
It's just how, can, how long can you delay that process and how long can you stay relevant and, and be able to make a living through racing and how, how can you're delaying the inevitable, like I said. So, you know, there's an expiration date on your career, but how good can you stay and for how long? So to answer your question, did it weigh on me? Yeah. Could I have had more fun and and enjoyed and been in the moment more? Absolutely. Um, and I, I think more, I think back more on my time in Europe, you know, I, I raced like 125 times in Europe, something like that. Uh, it's a lot, right? You think about just the, the flight time alone going around the world and Australia and Central America, and, uh, you know, all over Europe. Um, it, it's a, it was a big part of my life is, is racing in these countries, Germany being the most. Um, but I didn't enjoy those really either. I, I enjoyed the success that I had. I, I really look back with a lot of pride on that time in my life and the, and the races I won over there. But as far as having fun, I don't know about that because I was basically like, I was programmed like a robot. I would go to the race, like fly to the event, go to the track, get my bike built with whoever the mechanic that I had was go to the hotel, sleep, wake up, go to the track, do what I had to do and try to take a nap race, do it again the whole next day. And then straight to the airport. Like I didn't go out to bars I didn't go sightseeing, which all the people that I was with, they all did all that stuff. They would go out, you know, have beers the night before, not crazy. You know, after the race, they would get crazy and they would go see all these things while they were in country. I I didn't do any of that. I was solely focused on winning that race. That's why I went. I knew how the game worked. Those races paid like they were very top heavy for payment. And there are some, some exceptions, races like Bercy and, and Sheffield and stuff. I, I, my money was guaranteed, but I also wanted to perform so those guys would pay me more the next time, right? It was all, I was always looking towards next year's deal and how much money I could negotiate if I won or got on the podium, etc. But for Germany specifically, if you won, you made a ton of money and, or podium, great money, great bonuses, all that. But if you didn't, you didn't make hardly anything. So I wasn't willing to take a risk on being tired. And I would look over and see guys I was racing. It's yawning on the starting line because I knew they had been out the night before. I knew they had been doing all kinds of stuff that, yeah, that sounds fun too. I'd like to go see lots of things and do it, but there's a cost for all that. There, there is a price to pay. And I prioritized doing everything I possibly could to be ready for, for that night's racing because you're, you're dealing with jet lag and different food and all these things, it's not easy to be 100%. So you add in all those difficulties, plus you're going to go out and have drinks and do all this stuff till you know midnight or one in the morning. No, that's, that's not why I was there. So thankfully, I was very fortunate at this. After my racing career ended and my job started with fly racing, traveling internationally, especially the first year or two, was a heavy part of my job role. And, and I've got to continue doing that through MXGP and other things. But I really try to soak that time in now. Like if I go to like last year, I think I went to Europe four times, right? And, and it's been kind of a three to six type deal every year for me to go to Europe. And, and I don't know how 2023 will be. Maybe I don't go at all. Maybe just for Motocross Nations. I don't know. We'll see. But I've tried to make the most of it now because I don't have that, that weight bringing me down as far as like needing to perform, right? I I can 
not like get crazy, but I can go sightseeing and walk around town and see everything there is to see and still perform at my job at a high level and do all the things I need to do without all this pressure of the race being that weekend. Um, so I've really made the most of that. And I've been very, very lucky that I didn't, you know, I didn't wake up at 50 years old or, or will wake up at 50 years old one day and go, man, I really blew an opportunity to see the world because I just sat in my hotel room and tried to nap and, and stretch and do all these things. You know, I could have really made the most of that time, but I didn't. Thankfully, I won't ever have to face that because I've gotten these opportunities after that. And I've gotten to go see it all, see, not see it all. There are still places I want to go, but a, a huge part of the world I've gotten to visit and take in and really just absorb it with no real, you know, no time frame as far as like, man, I got to be here. I got to, I can just do what I want. And, and I'm very, very uh, thankful that that opportunity presented itself after my racing career. So related question from Larry. I've taken that same work ethic to the business side. Um, and he says some really nice things about that. I'm not going to say, but whatever. His question is, do you think that same drive and hard work ethic interferes with your personal life? Does this affect your ability to balance work and personal life? And yeah, it certainly does. Um, I probably have sacrificed relationships in the past. I would, I don't even say probably, I definitely have. Um, sometimes I regret it, you know, but you have to make decisions that aren't always easy in the moment. And it comes down to what do you want to get out of this life? You know, what do you, what are your goals? And for me, I have specific professional goals and financial goals for myself that sometimes, yeah, sometimes they went out if I have to make hard decisions. Not all the time. Like there's, there, there are a lot of wrinkles in personal relationships, business relationships, friendships, all those things. Like it's not just, oh, I choose work over that. That's not always how it goes. But a lot of times it's where are you putting your energy and focus? Is it on going and starting a family? Or is it going to push your career as far as it can be? Or is it expanding your horizons like these podcasts and going to all the races? And, you know, I get to do television for the USA this year for Supercross, which I've never got to do. It's always been a dream of mine, right? So I'm putting my energy and my effort into what I am pursuing. And everybody has different opinions on whether that's right or wrong. But in the end, I have to make that decision for myself. I have to choose what is going to hopefully make me happy and what I will look back on one day with less regret, right? Because I think you're going to always regret something. There's no way. But I think if you can look back one day when, when you're old and gray and regret less or make the right decisions that you're not going to regret this versus that, then I think you're doing it right. And things happen for a reason. Things happen in their own time frame. Um, so maybe some of the things I've missed out on because I've prioritized work are still in the cards for me. It just hasn't been the right situation yet. So I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic, um, but I'm also, I'm pursuing the things that are important to me and the things that I really want to do. And if that ever changes, if my priorities change or my desires change, then you'll see that reflected in what I'm doing and where I'm putting my time and my focus and my energy. But for now, I'm getting these incredible opportunities, which, you know, it's about to start with Supercross being the most notable of those. And obviously for pro motocross, I'll get to do TV again. That was the start kind of a, for the USA. I, I'm realizing these great opportunities and 
things are really happening. So I, I'm pedal to the metal, right? Like I want to make the most of an opportunity like that. And let's see where it can go. I don't know where the, the ceiling is, right? If it's, if it's this position where I'm doing the pit reporting and the podium interviews and things, if that's as far as I ever get, okay, awesome, right? But if you had told me when I was 15 years old or 12 years old or whatever, you know, old enough to realize these things, that I was going to get to broadcast or do the commentating for the Motocross of Nations in the USA on TV, I would have laughed in your face. There's no possible way that would ever be something that I would be able to do. Like, why would anybody allow me to do that, right? So if you look at it like that, who knows where the the limit is? I don't know where this thing could ever go. I don't know where the, like, I top out at, I run out of talent. So we'll see. Um, I'm just going to continue to chase opportunities, make the most of everything. You know, if if somebody offers me a chance, I'm going to say yes. And if I don't know how to do it, I'll figure it out. I'll, I'll learn, I'll take classes, I'll do whatever it takes to make the most of an opportunity. And, that, and that's just how I approach these things, right or wrong. It gets me in a stress, stressful situation sometimes, but I'm just trying to make the most of everything I, I possibly can get. Um, so that, that's it for now. So thank you, thank you, uh, Larry, for those questions. They're super insightful. Um, sometimes they're hard for me to face, right? Because I, I absolutely have harmed relationships and hurt people because of decisions I've made to prioritize work and things. I absolutely have done that. And it's not something I'm like crazy proud of. It's caused a lot of strife at times, but in the end, you have to do what you think is, is right for you and what's going to make you happy over the long term and things you can be, you can go to bed at night thinking you're doing the right thing and going down the right path for yourself. Um, And it's really hard to choose those at times. I'm sure all of you listening have faced that in your life. It's like you don't know which direction to go. You don't know which path will bring you happiness or success or set you up for the best life you can lead. Um, And and you just sometimes you just have to choose and, and live with the consequences. And that's, you know, I'm no different than in that regard. Uh, Dan has a question. All the years I've been in the industry, who has influenced me along the way? Is there anyone specifically that helped direct you in the path that you've gone through? Yes, there are. I mean, obviously, for anybody that has found success, I think, you know, parents are such an incredible aspect of that. And I was very lucky to have great parents that were willing to sacrifice pretty much everything to make sure I had what I needed to be successful. Um, so that, that plays a, a role, obviously, your entire childhood life. Um, you know, your parents can have such a profound effect on who you become and the success or failure. You know, some people have terrible parents and their, they, their life goes down a really bad road because of that. You know, they, they didn't have good guidance. They didn't, they weren't taught values. There's a lot there. So thankfully my parents were and are awesome. Um, that's something that can't be overlooked and, uh, something I'm, I'm very thankful for. But as far as like business and professional life, my racing career, I would say that Timmy Ferry probably had the biggest effect. Um, Chad, some too, but, but Timmy really taught me how to approach racing as a professional, like the, the routine, the discipline, um, being on a schedule, <clears throat> never being late, doing the work, you know, being accountable to yourself for putting the work in, um, Timmy taught me all those things and, 
you know, I don't, I don't think he was trying to teach me. It was more of, this is how I'm going about my business. And if you want to be around, if you want to learn from me and be able to ride at my track and be able to piggyback on my training program and all these things that I was so fortunate to do, then you got to do it too. You got to, you got to act right. You've got to show up on time. You have to be rested and do all these things. So every day for years, like four years in a row, every work day that I was on an airplane, I woke up, drove an hour and a half to the practice track. I was ready to ride by nine. And remember I was working on my own practice bike. So I had to get, get up, drive an hour and a half, get my practice bike stuff out, service it, whatever. And my dad would do all the heavy stuff, but I'm talking about like filter oil, you know, tires and all, get all that stuff ready. And Timmy was right. Like we're riding at nine. Sometimes we had to water the track too. Right. So be down there by, so I had to leave my house probably like six 30, get there at eight, be ready to ride at nine. We'd ride from like nine to noon ish. And it's like hard work, like motos, motos, motos. Like, okay, I'm not, we're not digging ditches. I understand, but we're sweating our asses off. Like we're working really hard doing this work finished by 12, 1230. And then I would be, you know, load up and haul ass, get back home by like two and, you know, shower, take a minute for myself. But then I'd be on like my bicycle by three, do like an hour on the bike. I'd be, you know, back home, shower again. And then I would go do some sort of like workout. I didn't lift a ton back then, but like stretch, ab work, something like light lifting at like 5.30 and be done by 6, 6.30. And that was just every day over and over and over and over for years until I finally moved to Tampa and still the same routine, but I didn't have such a, a long drive anymore. But that work ethic and that discipline of being willing to drive three hours every day and do that much work every day is was something that he instilled in me. And it, I carried that for years after that, right? I've, I've, I think that's why I was able to stick around so long as I, I was willing to stick to a routine, do the work. You know, it didn't matter if I was tired. It didn't matter if everybody was going out on the boat or they were going to go do something super fun, going to a concert. I, I couldn't. I, I wasn't going because I knew the next morning I had to be up awake, ready to roll, have all my stuff organized and and be in Dade city, ready to do motos again. Like it's just what I understood it took. And thankfully I, I, I'm happy that I was willing to do that. And I'm so thankful to Timmy for, um, whether he knew it or not, kind of forcing me to go down that path. And Chad in later years, once I'd moved to Tampa was, was similar. Um, Chad was, he was pretty hard on me, still is to this day, but it was for my own good. And his dad was really hard on him. So it was just his natural approach to it. But I mean, the amount of like hard, you know, tough love that he gave me was never ending, right? It was like always, I wasn't doing it good enough, fast enough, strong enough, um, whatever. And he was so damn good at everything he touched, like amazing on a bicycle, like he, he could go with like big group rides and ride at the front the whole time, right? And you never see that from him, but he was insanely good on a road bicycle and we'd go running and I would be in like pretty good shape for me, like at a high level for myself. He would be coming off the couch, like not training during the summer and be able to just smoke me. And I'm like, dude, how he was just really, really gifted. So he would just 
be berate me for lack of a better word, but it, it really drove me. Um, and he, you know, he instilled a lot of discipline in me as well. And, and he taught me so many things about riding over the years too. That was probably his biggest gift to me was allowing me to be around and really teach me the science of going fast on a motorcycle. Michael Byrne in the same vein of that, they really taught me how, how to go fast. Not that I could actually do it or execute it to the level they could or whatever, but the, the geometry and the physics of how people go faster. It wasn't just, Oh yeah, you got to go into the corner faster and then, you know, get on the gas earlier and do all No, there's, there's a lot to it. Um, and, and I had to learn all that. I didn't know that, you know, I, I was almost going fast by accident versus really understanding how these guys like Stewart and Carmichael, how do they go so fast? What are they doing specifically that allows them to go so fast? Um, and really breaking that down. So that was, that was really cool too. As far as my professional life, um, I would say Bob Lowry and Terry Baisley were easily, you know, the most influential, uh, both of them work at WPS. Uh, Terry is the one who hired me. It was his idea to create fly racing. And then Bob Lowry was my direct boss for, I don't know, eight years. And he taught me pretty much everything that I know. You know, he, I was with him every day traveling in the office. Um, he taught me all my good habits, bad habits, not really so much bad habits, but you know, I'm always the first one at the office. There are a couple of us, um, like technically we start work at eight. I'm at the office by like six fifteen, Um, and that's just something Bob instilled in me. We're going to be always be first at the office. We're going to lead by example, and we're going to be working on things and projects while everybody else is still home. That's just what he, th- that's how we're going to approach it. And our hard work will pay off. So I'm still there. Like he's retired now and I'm still there at six fifteen every day staring at the computer. Um, and that's just something that I made a habit and now it feels normal. Um, and how we approach business, how we approach customer service, uh, how we go about our, our business life is, is pretty much all from Bob. And, uh, I, I owe him a endless debt, uh, for teaching me the things that I know now. And obviously we still learn every day. Um, but I, I don't, I would have been lost in this, in this side of the business. Uh, had he, he not been so patient with me, um, it was of course his job to teach me, but he went about it in a really great way and taught me unknowingly at times. I just kind of watched and observed. And then I tried to understand the why he was doing certain things. And I would ask questions and he would be patient with me of explaining the why, because he had been doing this for 30 years before I ever got there. So you have to think about he's doing things that are just habit and he's not really considering the why that I'm watching. I'm going, okay, why did you do that? Why you made this decision about how much to buy or seasonality or why did we put this on special this month? And I would have to ask like, what, what, I don't, I don't get it. Okay. And he would explain it. This is because we're going into this season. This is when dealers want to bring that product in. They need to stock up now. This is when they need to be lowering inventory on all these types of items because it's going out of season. Um, we need to be checking on, uh, as far as like the North and North side of the country, their business is going to be much different than the South side. So how do we work our closeout season to make sure we don't kill one of the two? So there's just a lot there that I didn't know. And, um, again, very thankful that he was willing to teach me, even though he probably didn't want to, I'm sure it was a hassle for him. 
um, he was willing to do it. So thanks, Dan. Great question. Uh, and for the last question, this is from Kurt and Kurt and I are buddies known him a really long time. He's done my VIP program a bunch. Um, and I'll be doing that again this year. So if anybody's interested in that, please let me know. Uh, but he's asking about Ken Roxon and, He's, he, you know, he was leaving RCH Suzuki back in 2016 uh, to go to factory Honda for the 2017 season. He says, one of the comments I made that really stuck was it was a tough transition because Kenny was going from the most forgiving bike in the market to the least forgiving bike in the market. And what he's talking about there is the frame rigidity. That Suzuki in 16, that model was really forgiving, the words he said. But it flexed a lot. It you could get away with a lot, right? If it if you got out of shape, it didn't punish you. Um, you could think you were going to crash, and you wouldn't crash. And you went to the Honda, where that wasn't the same. The Honda is notoriously rigid. Um, it is super precise. Like it's a great supercross bike, in my opinion. But it will bite you. Um, it is really uh, twitchy, right? And it doesn't promote a lot of confidence. It doesn't. It's not very stable, in my opinion, comparatively to like that 2016 and earlier Suzuki. They're, they're very different. So yes, I, I remember talking about that, and it's very, very true. Even to this day, I think it's still true. Uh, he goes on to say, on the Honda, we certainly saw wrecks and incidents that we had not seen from Kenny before, and I often wondered if that was due to the change in stability of the platform you mentioned. With that setup, do you think the opposite is true now? Does it mean that Kenny could potentially be going from the least stable motorcycle to the most stable motorcycle? And how will that play out? There is something to that. Yes. Um, he's made, he's made comment about that, right? The Honda last year, I think Chase Sexton also made comment about it. It will bite you. If you make a mistake, it will really, really make you pay for it. And you've seen, you saw Sexton have huge crashes in Supercross last year. And Kenny's had big ones too. His crash at Oakland. Um, he's had some really big get-offs. So yes, there is something to that. Um, you just can't get out in front of your skis on the Honda. You have to be really mindful of it. It does some things really well. It will turn on a dime. It You can um, really carve like insides of corners really well, almost like the old KTM did. The, the previous generation KTM was similar to that. But yeah, outdoors... Um, I never really felt very confident in it. Um, I think they made some strides with the bike this year for sex, and you could see how well he was doing on that bike this year. But I will say that the Suzuki, I feel, has moved more towards the Honda than, than the previous models. Like if you go back to the 9, 10, 11, 12, all the way 15, 16, I think it was in that, that conversation of what Kurt's saying here where it was forgiving. It turned really well, but it it man, it was so stable. Whatever they did to create that stability in the frame geometry, man, you could really feel it. When they changed the, that bike quite a bit for 2018, to me, it lost some of that. They went more rigid and it, it turned really well, but I don't know, you know, I'm not, I'm not a engineer, so I don't know exactly how all the, you know, the spars and the stem and all that. I don't know how all that, they change it. What, you know, how exactly that transfers into the handling dynamics. But I think it's less of that. So I think it's yes, your question, Kurt. Yes, he has gone, he's gone to more stability. He's going to appreciate that feel and maybe he can get away with a little bit more. But I don't think it's 
to the same level that it was prior. So we'll see, right? We're going we're gonna to find out very soon, less than seven days from now, how all that looks. Um, I do think there's something to what you're saying that this bike will give him a little bit more of a, a positive feel and, and promote confidence. And you could, he'll probably feel like he can push the edge a little bit more on this bike. I just think it's maybe a little bit less than it, than it was to me. I went to Japan and I, I rode this bike at the debut in Japan. It was awesome. I'm very, very lucky to be able to do that. But it was one of the things I noticed is it just felt a little bit stiff. It didn't have that plush feel that the prior Suzuki models had. And I, I would guess they're probably were doing that because everybody else was going that direction. Everybody was moving that direction. More, more weight on the front, which the Honda is notorious for. That allows it to turn really well. But it also decreases stability. The more weight you have over the front, things can get out of control in a hurry. Um, I hate that feel. I love the older style models, like, you know, typically like an 08, 07, 06, 05 Honda would be what I would point to as like, that was the pinnacle of like frame geometry. But I think they've wanted to make the bikes turn better for your, for the novice rider. Like, and they do turn better. No question. If you just put your, uh, a beginner level rider on the bike, He's going to feel like it's super nimble and he can turn on a dime. That's great. I understand that they're building the bike for the consumer, but for a professional going really fast on a brutally tough, you know, pro motocross level track, it's a challenge to work with because the bike doesn't have that high speed stable feel anymore because they've sacrificed, like they've chosen nimble turning radius over high speed stability. That is an absolute decision that they made. And I'm not, it's not my choice or or call to say whether that's right or wrong. But as a pro, we had to live through that. And and really, it it created a lot of headaches as far as handling for the motorcycle. So I think in the end, again, I think he's going back that direction, just not quite as far as maybe it would have been if he was racing like a 2016 Suzuki. So we'll see. We'll see what, uh, what the new year brings. I'm, I'm very excited to see how this goes for Kenny, because if, if you know him and you followed him, he loves to prove people wrong. He loves to shut people up. And this is a great opportunity for him because he's on a privateer team. He is getting some factory equipment, but remember like Suzuki doesn't have a, a, a team in Japan, like building all these factory parts anymore. Like that's done that they closed that. Right. So it's not like He's on a privateer team with this full factory setup, and Japan's all on board, and they're sending out. That department is not up and running like it was. So it's going to be a smaller effort, and he's going to have less resources than he's probably ever had to work with. So I don't know how that shows up. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe we can't tell, but it is a reality. They are going to be, he is going to be less able to make sweeping changes on the motorcycle, in my opinion than he's ever been able to. And, and we'll see. We'll see if that matters or not. Thank you again to everyone for listening. Check out the Patreon podcast. Check out all these great sponsors, Pirelli Tires, Guts Racing, Plum Creek Funding, Fast Foundry. And, and for some of these, you know, I, I spend a lot of time talking about all the great things that they do. I'm trying to keep this one a little bit short. Guts Racing's into the uh, e-bike department now. They have seats and seat covers for e-bikes now. Uh, Progo Wash has their great wash. Pirelli has... They have the new mini tires that came out last year. They have their new amateur support program that just launched that you can check out. 
Pump Creek funding is getting added to new states all the time. They just added Florida and Texas. So if you're in one of those states, you can reach out to Pump Creek funding. International Vet MX Series, I'm going to have a list of dates for next week's show to go over. So if you're your race vintage class, maybe you are uh, a senior rider, you want to check out those races. They're primarily on the West Coast. Grant Stone Boots, I got some brand new boots that are on the way. Can't wait to see those. Works Connection, they have those uh, new foot peg mounts for the Yamaha for the 23. Check those out. Improved riding triangle. They did a ton of testing with Chris Kiefer. Obviously, the Pro Launch Start device has been something I've harked on for years. It's not a secret why you see those guys at the front every week. Pro Launch Start device, the easiest to assemble, the most reliable, and really, really high performance. So thank you to Eric and the team at Works Connection. Fast Foundry, Robert and crew have been supporters of Privateers forever. They used to help, or still do, help Adam Insignap. They sponsor this podcast, but they can really do a lot of great things for your small business or big business. So check out Fast Foundry and the team. And of course, Fly Racing, where I'll be back in the office on Tuesday. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, you know, the, the market is difficult right now. We're having to make a lot of decisions that are going to base how successful we are in 23 and 24 right now. So it's pretty wild times in the power sports industry. Um, but yeah, keeps us on our toes, right? So thank you to everybody for being a part of this podcast. And thank you to most to you, the listener for a great 2022. I'm really excited about what 2023 is going to bring. Very excited that the races are back and guys, The wait is over. It's go time. Let's do this. See ya.